as we begin this part of Ecclesiastes, um, there are two musicals that I thoroughly enjoy, that I love. The first musical that I enjoy and love is anything my kids are in. Okay, so if my kids are in it, I'm going to love it. And there is a second musical that I could probably watch once a year and never get tired of. And there is a quote from that musical, and I just want to put the quote up on, on the screen. Don't scream out the answer, but if you see this quote and you go, I know exactly who that is, then you are one of those precious people that agree with me that this is probably one of the best musicals out there. If I were a rich man. Now, don't, don't, don't say it. Don't say it. If I knew that it would not embarrass my family greatly, I would start to sing. And move a little bit more Pentecostal. But uh, this movie, or, or this, this musical, um, especially in that one scene where Tevia is in the barn. Of course, we're talking about which musical? Fiddler on the Roof. And he is in the barn, frustrated with life, and he breaks forth in this wonderful song and dance in which he's asking God to be a rich man. And he has this line towards the end of it which says, uh, Lord, who made the lions and the lambs, and decreed what, uh, uh, and decided what I should, uh, okay. I knew I should have probably looked this up. Lord, who created the lion and the lambs, and decreed that I should be what I am, would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I were a wealthy man? And the whole point of that is he looks at his life and how hard it is, how mundane it is, how struggling it is. And he looks at the rich in town and he wants to be that rich person because he feels life would be so much easier. You know, people would come to him and ask him advice. He'd have this house that had stairs going up, another staircase going down, leading nowhere because he wants to demonstrate his wealth and power. Solomon was made a wealthy man by God far beyond whatever musical could desire. He lived it. Unrestrained wealth, unrestrained wisdom, unrestrained influence as king in Israel. He truly was a wealthy man. Now, Jesus, more than once, did encounter someone rich and wealthy. And in fact, in Luke chapter 18, we have a story and a parable of a man that comes up to Jesus. And um, Jesus turns this idea of riches and wealth and gives us the right perspective of it. Uh, in verse 18 of Luke 18, and then we are getting back to Ecclesiastes, but all of this leads up to Ecclesiastes because Ecclesiastes focuses on things that we see in our lives that we want differently and better because we're frustrated with how our life is. And one of the things that people generally run to is if I was rich, I would not have all these problems. Things would be easier. 
And Solomon wants us to get out of that mindset that riches bring ease or that riches bring joy or that riches bring comfort or that riches bring <sighs> arrival where you don't have to do anything anymore. And so Jesus has this encounter with what's called a rich ruler. Verse 18 of Luke 18, and a ruler asked him, asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? One of the easiest evangelism questions you could ever be asked. You're there, standing there, and someone comes up to you and says, how can I be saved? What a wonderful opportunity. Jesus could have said, well, you know what? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Trust in me, and you shall be saved. But he knows this man is not really talking about faith or heart or love. He's talking about something completely different in his perspective. And so Jesus said to him in verse 19, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, that is the rich young ruler, all these things I've kept from my youth. All right, so he has the mentality that he is an incredibly spiritual, godly person because he has kept a list of do's and don'ts. And when he looks at religion, it's a list of do's and don'ts. And his list of do's is well accomplished. And his list of don'ts is very small. I don't do those things. So he's relating to God based on works, based on how good of a person he is. And so many people walk through this life in other relationships and their relationship with God, believing it is based on their good obedience. If I do good things for God, he'll be blessed and help me out and save me. But that is not at all the point that Jesus is getting at, a list of obedience, because Jesus hits them right in the heart when he says in verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So Jesus gives the call, abandon everything this life has to offer. Every comfort, every ease, every joy, every vacation, every retirement plan. Remove it from your life. Give it away. Everything you have, give it away and do one more thing. Follow me. Make me, that is Jesus, the object of your passions and desires and footsteps. Where I'm leading you, you will follow. And you have no worldly safety net to fall back on because you have to give it all away. Even knowing what we know about Jesus Christ today, I think it would be a struggle for many of us to say, I'll give it all away and follow Jesus. I'll give it all away and follow Jesus. Now the point of this was not that Christians should have no property, no wealth, no nothing, because scripture talks about the fact that having wealth is not wrong. But when it stops you from following Jesus, it is absolutely wrong, whether you have a lot or a little. Anything that stops you from following Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is wrong and an idol. But Jesus pinpoints this guy's root problem. His root problem is he trusts in his wealth. And when he heard these things, he became very sad. 
for he was extremely rich. When he heard what Jesus asked him to do, he was sad. He was broken. He finally knew for that moment of life his riches didn't bring happiness. God was calling him to a life of heart obedience, not a life of following rules and regulations and relying on your riches, but relying on him completely. Every word that proceeds from his mouth, relying on him and devoting yourself to that lifestyle of faithfulness. This man couldn't do it. This man, described in, in uh, uh, Luke 18, is nowhere near as rich as Solomon was. Not even close. Solomon equipped him or eclipsed him by such a huge percentage, it's not even possible to imagine it, that Solomon was so much more rich. Later on in that story and dialogue in Luke 18, the disciples become very perplexed and they ask Jesus, from everything we know about religious life and Judaism, this guy, the rich young ruler, should be the closest one to God. He should be the most spiritual, alive to God and faithful to God. And if he can't make it into heaven, who can? And Jesus' answer is revolutionary. With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Man's standard, it's impossible to please God and walk with God. By man's standard, it is impossible to have a relationship with God when a father and child. By man's standard, you will never be born again, regenerate, new life. By man's standard, whether you are poor or rich or beautiful or homely or tall and thin or short and dumpy, none of that matters before God. And every standard that we judge others by, humanly speaking, God doesn't consider those at all worthy of his attention when it comes to spiritual well-being and joy. He has a completely different system by which he goes by. And that system is absolute perfection or damnation. Absolute perfection not, I do my best and I succeed most of the time, 99% of the time. No, 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 no. It's absolute perfection. His standard has nothing to do with money or looks. It has everything to do with the status of your heart before God's holy standard. Do you meet that standard or not? And everybody's answer in the end to that question is no. I do not meet that standard. I do not meet it. I do not live by it. Sometimes I strive against it, but I do not live by the standard of be holy for I am holy. But there is hope, and we'll see hope at the end of this. Now we go back to Ecclesiastes, giving us that framework that we need in order to look at this book. And we have this question or statement that's happening at the beginning of every message defining wisdom from God's perspective. And so we're going to read this together and we're going to fill in the blank together. Wisdom 
is correctly, okay, let's do this again. We're going to do this together. One, two, three. Wisdom is correctly applied biblical knowledge. Wisdom is correctly applied biblical knowledge. I felt like I was in fifth grade just then. Excellent. But that is exactly what Solomon is getting at through this entire book is that wisdom, true wisdom that honors God and considers God is taking God's word, his truth, and applying it rightly in our lives. That's wisdom. Experience is not wisdom. Age is not wisdom. Wealth is not wisdom. Past experiences of success and failures and learning from those is not wisdom. But wisdom is taking God's word, understanding it, and rightly applying it to our lives and as we do that, we walk in the newness of life, we walk in the light of his word, we walk in the footsteps of holiness when we take his word and apply it in our lives. And Solomon continues in chapter 2. He's already talked about self-indulgence and, and giving himself to every pleasure. And he begins in chapter 2, verse 12, to talk about some more things regarding work. Work. That beautiful thing that is not part of the curse. Work is not part of the curse. Work was actually part of the blessing that God gave Adam and Eve before sin entered the world. God gave them a job that you are to tend the garden, name the animals, take care of what I've given you. So before the fall, work was a beautiful thing, a necessary thing, something that God designed us to engage in, to fulfill ourselves by working. Since sin came, work became a lot harder. We got thorns, thistles, stress, death, a whole bunch of headaches, bad weather. Everything that frustrates work right now is the result of the fall. But before that, God made work beautifully for us to engage in. And he talks about work starting in verse 12 of chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. He goes, so I turned, my consider so I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, or silliness and folly, for what can man do who comes after the king? So after being king, what possibly could there be that man could accomplish and find joy and happiness in? It says in verse 13, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there is more gain in light than in darkness. So there's, there's a beautiful, beautiful connection to a well-being, well-run well life when you do consider wisdom, when you do consider rightly applying God's word to your life compared to the person who's a fool who doesn't consider God at all. There is a difference between those two. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. So he notices that there's two people in the world and I know he's brought, uh, painting with a very broad stroke, but he's saying there's two kinds of people in the world, the people who walk by wisdom and the people who walk in ignorance, who refuse to listen to advice, who refuse to learn from other people's experiences, who refuse to learn from their own experiences, who refuse to take God's word and apply it. They ignore God's word. He says there's a difference between these two, but in the end, look at what it says there at the end of verse 14. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. 
What do you think happens to all of them? The people who walk with wisdom before God and the people who are foolish before God, what in the end happens to both of them? They die. See, I told you it was going to get a lot more encouraging as we go through. We've already, we got to the point of death. I mean, I don't know what else could be more of a bummer. So we're already at, we're at the peak, and now we're going downhill because we've already talked about, hey, we're all going to die. He says in verse 15, Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity, useful, uselessness. So Solomon gets to a point of great self-reflection and says, yes, my life has been blessed with every imaginable physical thing that you could desire, but I have the right perspective of it. It doesn't bring joy and happiness. It really does not satisfy. And he looks at the life of the fool who doesn't think about anything about God, anything about right or wrong, anything about truth, and he just lives a life of folly and uh, full of insecurities and no joy, and he dies. And Solomon realizes, I live this life where I reflect on God's wisdom, and I got everything as well, and in the end, guess what? I die. And he goes, in a sense, what's the point of anything then? We're just going to die. Like I said, we're at the peak and we're going to go downhill. But we're at the peak. What's the point of living a life of holiness and wisdom and a life of folly, foolishness, and ignorance? In fact, sometimes you might say, you know, the ignorant person has it better because they have no clue what's going on in life, and they're just going through it, you know, kind of out of the seat of their pants. But the wise individual realizes we are all feeble humans, and we cannot conquer death by foolishness or by wealth. It'll happen to all of us. Verse 16, for of the wise as of the fool. So he's showing us the comparison that the fool and the wise are the same in many ways. So of the wise and as a fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been gone long, or long, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Outside of rare historical examples, the fool and the wise die. And that's it. We saw in the very first message here in chapter 1 that two, three hundred years from now, if the Lord doesn't return in between that time, no one's going to remember who it was that sat in the second row, the third row, or the last row. Not even our relatives will really know our names. They may see something on a genealogy page. They may walk through a cemetery. I don't know how many times you've done this, and I haven't done it many times, but if I've gone to a cemetery for a funeral, I, I do kind of look around at the other gravestones, and 
man, I don't know anybody. I don't know who they are. And even the few that I may recognize or know, I'm like, wow, the memory is so distant. I kind of forgot what they looked like. I kind of forgot the sound of their voice. And you may have someone in your life, a grandparent, that you truly do have memories of like that. But their great-great-great-grandchildren will have none of those memories. None. They won't know their favorite meal, their favorite color, where they lived, what they did, their humor, their wisdom. And that's true for 8 billion people that are living today. We are not so important to this world that we'll have a monument and a holiday named after us. There are a few exceptions in history that have that, but very few, very few. And Solomon looks at that conclusion of life and says, this is pretty useless. We're here for a moment. We live for a moment. We're gone. And in time, to the world, you are forgotten. The last verse in that section, verse 17, says, So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Solomon, in all of his wisdom, at the conclusion of this mental exercise of what is life and why am I here, looks at the world around him and comes to the conclusion, nothing changes, we all die. And from the world's perspective, that is their best message that they can lead with. Everything is vanity. Everything is useless. Everything falls apart. Everything decays. Everything is fleeting. You cannot grab onto one moment of lasting peace and joy. The next day changes it. And on top of that, we die. Wisest man that has ever lived has come to the conclusion that in this world, left to itself, life sucks. He hates it. He hates it. Now remember, I mentioned early on, he's speaking really from the perspective of what it's like without God. What it's like having no eternal compass of God's word directing us, but just simply looking at life on its own terms of living, he comes to that conclusion. It's like grasping at smoke and steam. You cannot hold on to it. There's no significance. There's nothing. And without God, there is nothing without him. He continues in chapter uh, 2, verse 18 through 23, and says the following. I hated all my toil. I hated all my toil, which is all my work, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me. And who knows whether he be wise or a fool, 
Yet he will be master of all of which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity, useless, grasping after the wind. What Solomon is telling us is absolutely true. You can spend your entire life really devoted and dedicated to working under the sun. You are diligent, you are faithful, you never call a day off sick, you are always there, you are reliable, you are skilled, you are accomplished, and in the scheme of normal world things, you are rewarded with being paid for all of that. And maybe you are frugal and wise in how you spend your money and you're not foolish, you save it and you invest it and you build it, and all of a sudden at the end of your life you go, all right, I'm one of those millionaires. And then something happens. You die. And where does all that money go? 40% of it goes to fund Washington, D.C. and its programs of hmm, socialism. Let me leave it at that. The rest of it goes to your heirs or descendants that you've put into your will. And uh, I've seen what it's like firsthand, not on the millionaire side, but getting an inheritance as a family, how much fighting it can cause. I've told you that when my great-grandmother died and the, we went to the home, that her children were fighting and counting the paper clips that she had in her desk drawer and dividing up the paper clips. Now I know when you go through a depression, you value everything, you can always use it. But I'm telling you, if you're fighting over a box of paper clips, here's a dollar. I mean, I don't want to fight about paper clips. And they fought and fought and fought about things that were worthless. And where are those paper clips today? Trash. Trash. And Solomon is saying, I have amassed such a fortune under God's blessing, but everything that I have, I'm going to die and it's going to go to someone else. And they might be a fool or they might be really good at money management. But it doesn't matter. I won't know how they do it. And in the end, I won't know how their grandkids will do it or their great-great-great-grandchildren will do it. Or a millennia from there, what will happen to my stuff? Well, where is King Solomon's gold right now? Where is it? No one has a clue. Why? Because invaders and thieves and robbers and people who have been spending it have been spending it his entire, the entire time after he died. It's gone. It is somewhere in this world, but it doesn't have his name on it saying this is Solomon's. It's gone, it's been used, it's been spent 100 times over. All of his work benefited his children, but his great-great-great-grandchildren and those that came after him in our generation, there's no benefit. And he says, and when I look at that, I realize there's a lot of useless things we strive for in this life. One of the most useless things we strive for and worship and idolize is wealth. And he tells us what happens to it. Verse 20, so I turned, 
about and gave my heart up to despair over to all the toil of my labors under the sun. Finally says, I give up. I, I can't fight this. This is going to happen, and it's going to happen until the Lord returns. The cycle of working and toiling and stressing out and having and then not having and then being forgotten. It just happens. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. So he's looking at his life going, the Lord has blessed me. He has made me fruitful. He has incredibly given me wealth beyond measure. And I'm going to leave it to one of my kids. And if you know anything about the history of Israel and the kings, Solomon's kids did not walk after Solomon. They squandered it and wasted it in ungodly living. And he said, you know, all the toil I've done, it's not helping them one bit. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? So what's the point of all this working, all this saving, all this striving, all this building up wealth, building up power, building up prestige? Well, in the end, verse 23 tells us, for all his days are full of, full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation, which is a frustration. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There's a small blessing in not having very much stuff. When you don't have a lot of stuff, you don't have to worry about someone stealing nothing. And I got nothing. So the stock market crashes, I got nothing. Now I know all of that affects us, but he's talking from a personal standpoint. I can't imagine what Solomon was thinking each day when he went to bed. Is there someone that's gonna come in and take what I have so they have? Is there someone who's gonna murder me to take what I have? He looks at that and says, this is an endless cycle of vanity. It doesn't bring peace at night. It doesn't bring joy and comfort at all in his life. It brings stress. In fact, I think if you, uh, a long time ago, I read some articles on uh, people who won the lottery. You know, one day they were working a, a nine to five job and all of a sudden they win $100 million. And the expectation from our perspective is, wow, it's got to make life really easy for them. They get to quit their job. They get to go on vacations, have a nice home, never have to worry about money again. Well, the statistics show that those individuals have a very, by and large, vast majority, have a miserable life. Many of them end up going bankrupt. And you go, how can someone who just got 50, 100 million dollars go bankrupt? Oh, they're really good at it. They're really good at it. But they're not happy. They're not satisfied. They're not okay with themselves and with the world around them. It's hard. A life filled with sorrow. Just like that rich man who walked away when Jesus said, follow me, but give up everything you have. Having stuff does not equal happiness. In the end, in Fiddler on the Roof, the family realizes that. They have each other. 
And that is a source of happiness, not the stuff. But I think Solomon would counter even that mentality and say, you may value happiness in family, which is a laudable thing to have. But do you know what happens to all families? Stark reality. They die and are buried. Every single one of them. So Solomon has a conclusion here in verse 24 through verse 26. And I said, you know, we're at the peak. I mean, it can't get any worse than, hey, you know what? We work, we save, we die. Okay, so now we're at the peak of that most depressing of thoughts. We work and all life is meaningless because we all end up dying. Whether we're a fool or wise, we die. Solomon gives us a little bright spot. And I think he's now coming downhill into this beautiful grassy valley, which we're only going to be at for one week, and then we go back up another steep hill. But he says in verse 24, there is nothing better for a person than he should eat, drink, and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. So he says, I see something from God's hand in life, and that life does have moments of punctuated joy and happiness in our work. Because all of a sudden, when I work, I get to have a meal, and I have that meal, and there's enjoyment in that meal and fellowship and drink. There's fun in that. There's happiness. There's memories. There's photographs of it. There's singing happy birthday songs. There's having cake. And there's joy in our hearts, even if it is just for a moment. There is joy in our hearts. And we're not reminded of the toil of work and death, the reality of it. But we have moments where there are exciting things that do bring us a smile. And it's from the hand of God. God gives those moments to us. The family, the memories, the fun moments. We have those. He does give us those things. Life is not filled with just depressing moments, but he does give us thrilling, exciting moments. Albeit, they're usually very superficial. Your favorite team winning your favorite sporting event, the Super Bowl or the World Series or, or the Stanley Cup, while it may bring incredible joy at the moment and camaraderie and, and fun, it doesn't last. Because the next season starts and you may not have that same high that you had the year before with your team. Same thing goes for everything. But there are those moments, and it's from the hand of God. And he says in verse 25, For apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment, apart from God, there can't be any type of punctuated moments of joy and happiness. He gives those to the fool and to the wise. He gives that to the believer and the unbeliever alike. The unbeliever is blessed by God by having moments that are not just filled with terror and death. They have moments where there is joy and excitement in their life. It's not lasting. It's not soul-satisfying. But God, God does give them a favorite food. God does give them a favorite song. God, God gives them favorite people to hang out with and family. And as fleeting and as useless as those things are in eternity, at least they've had a moment at least they've seen joy and happiness in their life to a small extent. They've gotten it. 
And it's God in his grace and mercy that's given it even to those who turn their back upon him. He still gives them moments of joy. And then Solomon concludes here in verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. In the end, God says, all this working and striving, God does bless the believer. Doesn't mean he's going to make us all wealthy and have an easy financial life. But in God's perspective, those joys that I bring them are so lasting that the unbeliever, even in their life, in their life, brings joy to the believer. In conclusion, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul gives us the right perspective that Solomon is defining for us. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Solomon would say a life like that, which Solomon had without knowing the name of Christ, but he trusted in God's providing a sacrifice. His whole life is identified with being in Christ. You see, when we are identified with being in Christ, with this kind of faith, then the things of this world, they, they lose their importance. They lose their shininess. They lose their, I need to have it. And instead we become satisfied with our faithful relationship that Christ has with us. And our identity is no longer in what I look like, what I have. It's in who is Christ? Who is Christ? Your identity, the way you describe yourself and see yourself should first and foremost always come with what is Christ like? What is Christ like? What does he love? That's what I should love. What is he passionate about? I should be passionate about that. What does he refrain from? I should refrain from that. And what does he sell himself out to? Then I need to sell myself out to the same thing, which, surprise, surprise, is loving God with your whole heart, soul, strength, everything you are, to love God first and foremost. You see, if we identify life by ourselves, me, 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 we are just like that rich young ruler who thinks it's all about himself and his stuff. But if we identify in Christ, who he is and what he's granted us through forgiveness and mercy, we then have peace. And if there is one thing lacking in this world, it's peace between us and God. And Christ offers that. Let's pray and the worship team can come up. Father, we are grateful and thankful that you hit us with hard, real truths that we might be able to apply and respond to in faith, acknowledging that in Christ we have our all in all, that in Christ we have our name, 
In Christ, we have our future. In Christ, we have forgiveness. In Christ, we have holiness. In Christ, we have value and purpose and worth. Help us, Father, to focus on that eternal truth more than the fleeting things of this world that bring no lasting satisfaction to our soul. Help us, Father, to follow you. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, amen. Let's stand and sing.